Hi there. Thanks for checking out Miss CO Day Winnipeg's podcast today. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message blesses you. Today we're going to continue a, a very unique study, something that I've dreamed of doing for years, and I finally got the chance of, of studying the Messiah through the eyes of George Friedrich Handel. He was a Baroque composer, late the Baroque composer of 1685 to 1759. Um, and he wrote obviously one of the most famous pieces ever written in Western civilization called Messiah, from which we get the Hallelujah chorus. Right? Um, and the piece written in 1741, it, uh, and it was Handel and his librettist, who the modern day way of saying it would be a lyricist, comes up with lyrics, is Charles Jennings who went to the King James Version of the Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, and compiled the whole story of Messiah. It's kind of like, it's called an oratorio, which is essentially an opera without acting. And it describes the prophecies from ancient times of the Messiah. It talks about the birth of the Messiah. It talks about the ministry of the Messiah. And it talks about the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah. It talks about his his place in heaven, and it talks about the second coming of the Messiah, the last judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. The the narrative, if you will, <laughs> of the Messiah, and so um, the part the piece comes in three parts. So we covered part the first last week about the the birth of the Messiah. Um, we covered a bit about Isaiah 9. We get Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Some of you have heard this before. For unto us a child is born. Right? Heard that. And we talked about the background of that. Does anyone remember what we said about that? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Mahal Shalash Shabaz and Sherjir. Yeah, it's Isaiah's sons, right? And we talked about the context of Isaiah nine. Um, was that? Um, it actually refers. There's a part where it talks about Midian before that, and that it was Midian was a time of Gideon, where God used Gideon to deliver the Israelites. Deliver the Israelites from the Midianites, to use Gideon to, just, to deliver them. And it wasn't by human effort, right? They had thousands of soldiers, and they, God cut down the army, the Israelite army, from 22,000 to 300. <laughs> you want to talk about the movie 300? That's your movie 300 right there. Not of muscular, built dudes, but of regular Israelites. That was the confusion, right? That's right. They made sounds, they blew trumpets, they, they broke clay jars. And it's almost as if supernaturally God compounded the, the sound with sound. He used sound effects, supernatural sound effects to, yeah. So that, it, and, but the key is, is that he said to Gideon, that Israel may not say that my hand has done this. That Israel may not say that my hand has done it. Amen. That we may not boast in our own strength. Right? Paul says, I will glory in my weakness, for when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Right? That the excellency, Paul writes, may be of God, 
and not of us. That's what Isaiah 9, 6 is. That's why the birth of Messiah is happened because it shows our weakness, right? It shows that we cannot save ourselves, that we have no power to deliver ourselves, but it must be by the hand of the Messiah that deliverance comes. Anyways, so, and we talk about other scriptures too, but we'll keep going. So part the second, and I post all the scriptures there. Next slide here. Lots of scriptures. All right. everyone hear what that's saying? Behold the Lamb of God. Who said that? John. In John 1. You can turn there. So it's the book of John, chapter 1. I'll get someone to read it. So can I get someone to read John, chapter 1, verse 29? Just that one verse. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mm. So this is, right? So this is after the baptism, right? John sees Jesus walking and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Which is interesting. Well, where does he get this idea from? Where, obviously, the Father, the Holy Spirit, revealed this to John. Where does he get this from? Does anyone know? Right from the Torah. Where? Yeah. Right, Isaiah fifty-three. But even before that, where do you see this idea of lambs? Oh, um. Exodus twelve. Right. We see this in Exodus twelve. Um, from verse 3. So speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of the month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers. A lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take, take according to the number of, of souls there. Every man according to his eating shall make count your account for the lamb. And the lamb will be without blemish, a male of the first year, and he shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it up to the fourteenth of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two sides posts and the upper door posts of the house, the houses where they, they shall eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roast it with fire and with unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs shall they eat it. You shall not eat it raw, nor boil it at all with water, but it shall be roasted with fire. His head with his legs and the entrails as well. And you shall leave nothing of it. Right? And it keeps going in verse 11. Um, For it is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. 
I am the Lord. And later we see where it talks about the blood, where it says, when I see the blood, I shall pass over you. Right? This idea through the Pesach, through Passover, that God had to redeem the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. And then he commanded them to take a lamb for each household, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without imperfection, right? A lamb without um, defect. Interesting, right? Of its first year, in the prime of its life, its first year, right? A male, right? And it would be, it would be killed. And the blood would be taken and put on the door of the, of the house. And so when, when the angel of death the destroying angel came over that house, he would pass over that house. He wouldn't touch the people in that house. John makes the connection to the Messiah, to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. This is a Lamb chosen from the sheepfolds of Bethlehem, but not by human beings, but by God the Father himself. Amen. And that he would be the, the Lamb of God for Israel. And not just for Israel, but all the nations of the earth. Right? And that his blood would cover. And when the Father sees the blood, he will pass over. He will not bring judgment. We have passed from death unto life. Well, Handel keeps going with Isaiah 53, one of the most famous passages in Scripture. Now, I'm going to read... I'm going to read a passage. This is, comes from a ministry called One for Israel. It's a Jewish ministry uh, that, that ministers to the Jewish people. And this, this article was written by Aitan Bar. Okay. So it says, The 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levi admitted that long ago the rabbis used to read Isaiah 53 in synagogues. But after the chapter caused arguments and great confusion, the rabbis decided that the simplest thing to do would be to just take it, take that prophecy out of the Haftarah readings in the synagogue. Haftarah readings are yearly cycles of readings in the synagogue in Judaism. So they go through cycles every year of passages. And there came a point where because of the controversy, interesting, of Isaiah 53, they decided to take it out. So they, they go from Isaiah 52 and jump straight to Isaiah 54. What happened to Isaiah 53, you might be wondering. That is exactly what this article is about. In the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, the prophet Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah, that he would be rejected by his own people, suffer and die in agony, and that God would see his suffering and death as an atonement for the sins of humanity. Isaiah lived and prophesied about 700 years before Christ. According to his prophecy in Isaiah 53, the leaders of Israel would recognize they had made a mistake at the end of days, when they had rejected the Messiah. So Isaiah put the prophecy in past tense because he saw himself as part of the people, people of Israel. And then he saw, and so he used the third person plural, we. All right, interesting, All right? At the end of Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah writes an introduction to Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant shall prosper. The term servant is supposed to connect back to sections earlier in the book that speak of the servant of the Lord. For example, in chapters 42, 49, and 50, where the Messiah is described as a servant that suffers. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. 
This is to emphasize the eminence of the Messiah who would in fact rise from the dead and ascend to the heavens and sit next to the Father. His actions would give him a higher status than every human king or ruler. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was disfigured more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Before the Messiah is exalted, he would suffer and be humiliated. His body would be so abused and tortured so badly that he would be completely disfigured and unrecognizable. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will perceive. Despite the horrific suffering, the day would come when even kings would come to look to him with reverence. Now let's dive into Isaiah chapter 53 itself. Who has believed our report? This is describing the lack of faith among the people of Israel who don't believe what they've heard. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Isaiah calls the Messiah the arm of the Lord. In Hebrew, arm represents... When I flex a muscle, what am I doing? Showing that I'm... Strong. Strong. You see, the Messiah is called the arm of the Lord in, in, the, in the, uh, the prophetic book. Isn't that interesting? He's the strength of the Lord, the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth. I love it. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah declares that the arm of the Lord would rule for him. In chapter 51, the Gentiles put their hope in the arm of the Lord. And the arm of the Lord would redeem. In Isaiah 52, the arm of the Lord brings salvation. And now in Isaiah 53, Isaiah reveals to us that the arm of the Lord is in fact the Messiah. The Messiah is very much part of God himself. He is God in the body of a suffering servant. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him, nor beauty that we should desire him. He was a shoot in spiritually dry ground. And then one of the interpretations is, is there had been no word from God for over 400 years from the time of Malachi. It's called the intertestamental period between the switch between the Hellenistic era and the Roman Empire. There was no, there was no word from God. There was no prophet in Israel for, for, for over 400 years. And then out of nowhere, now we have the angel Gabriel coming to, to, to Elizabeth and then starts the whole process. <laughs> All right. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was not appealing to us. We did not want him. His appearance wasn't particularly glorious or impressive. And the way he showed up didn't cause people to desire him. In contrast to what rabbinic halakha teaches today, according to this prophecy, the Messiah would not be, be born to a prestigious rabbinic family or grow up in the grand residences of wealthy rabbis. That's what Judaism teaches, Talmudic Judaism. We can say with near certainty that the external appearance of the Messiah was nothing extraordinary at all. He wasn't like this Diego guy we watch in this, you know, what's that, that Bible AD or whatever. This guy where women are just like, these guys so hot, right? These movies, right? Like, oh my God, women, he's so hot. Yeah. He's not saying he's ugly, but he wasn't, he just walked by, down, by, him, by him by the market in Nazareth and just think, oh, whatever, some guy. 
you you wouldn't you wouldn't realize that he's <laughs> he's a messiah that he actually spoke the universe into existence but <laughs> you know you wouldn't realize that he's just a nobody he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief one from whom people hide their faces he was despised and we did not esteem him the life of the messiah was characterized by pain rejection and suffering he didn't get the honor due to the messiah but was despised and rejected by the leaders of his his people we considered him some kind of social misfit someone we might hide our faces from when we pass someone on the street that we are embarrassed to see we didn't think he was the messiah we didn't even register it could be him surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and we did esteem him stricken struck by god and afflicted mm. the messiah suffered in our place he carried our sicknesses our suffering our pain and the sins we committed while our people while we thought he was being punished and that his suffering was god's punishment for sins that he himself had committed but we didn't understand that it was for our sin. You see, they thought he was being punished for being a blasphemer. And if you are the son of God, come down from the cross ah, and we'll believe you. Yeah, come down. We'll believe you. But the reason you're being punished is because the, the prophet that speaks presumptuously, he shall be put to death. It's because of your own sin. We didn't understand that it was for our sin. He was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The Hebrew here says wounded, pierced. He died like someone who has fallen wounded or someone perforated with bullets, not for any fault of his own, but it was our wrongdoing. He was crushed because of our iniquity, our sin. The punishment and discipline we deserved went to him the stripes are hard blows that leave marks and by his scars we are healed in this way hundreds of years later the prophecy was fulfilled yeshua went to the cross in order to take the death we deserved all we like sheep have gone astray each of us turned to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all the hebrew talks about going astray like sheep wandering off and getting lost. We all, the people of Israel, ignored him and went on our own way. But despite this, God put all of our sin and iniquity on him, on the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. The Hebrew says he was exploited, abused. His dignity and right to a fair trial was taken from him. The Hebrew says he was afflicted or tortured, but he did not open his mouth. This shows he did not try to resist his unjust sentence. He did not try to rebel or escape. He did not take legal representation in spite of the fact he was facing a death sentence. But he was led like a sheep to the slaughter or to be sheared without resisting the injustices being done to him. Because of oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, 
Who considered? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. They arrested him and took him to trial. As a result of his trial, he was cut off from the land of a living. In other words, a death sentence. Not for his own crimes, but for those of his people. In the scriptures, my people always means the people of Israel. The Messiah would die not for his own sins, but the sins of his people. The people who should be taking the punishment for their own sins. But the Messiah took it upon himself. He was, is the one who died. His generation wouldn't care to bring him up in conversation, but would rather sweep his existence under the carpet. So for the last 2,000 years, Yeshua HaMashiach has been the best kept secret in Judaism. And this is precisely why he is labeled the issue in Judaism, which stands for may his name and memory be blotted out. In Israel, they don't call him Yeshua, which means in Hebrew, salvation. But they call him Yeshu HaNotzri, Jesus the Christian. The word Yeshu is an acronym or an acrostic. So it's taking the first letters of each word and making it making a, a name. And the name and literally means may his name and memory be blotted out. That's his name in Israel today, folks. The rabbis call him Ha Memzer Memzer Miriam, the bastard of Mary. Did you know that? He's a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. In fact, they also call him Yeshu Ben Pantera. There, there was a a rumor going around that, of course, they didn't buy the whole supernatural birth of the Holy Spirit bit from Miriam, from Mary. So what they thought it was is that she hooked up with a Roman, um, a, a Roman uh, military officer named Pantera. So she hooked up and got pregnant. That was the story going around in Israel. And we see even the, the Sanhedrin alluding to this. When he talks about where he's from, that I'm from above, you're from beneath, he's like, well, we know who our father is. We are not born of fornication. Many scholars believe they're taking a jab at him. Oh yeah, don't tell us about this business about you being the Messiah. We all know, we all know your story. We all know where you came from. When the Bible says he's a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, folks, it means that even from a young age. Imagine being a Jewish family, a Jewish teenage girl, with a, probably a much older husband in the city of Nazareth in Galilee in the first century AD. And now you're pregnant. And your pregnancy has come from really dubious circumstances. I mean, you're, you're telling the story of how this angel, Gabriel, by the way, there hasn't been an angel or a prophet in 400 years. But suddenly an angel came to you and said that somehow, that essentially God would put himself in your womb and you'd give birth to the Son of God, the Messiah. How many people are going to buy that story? Right? Now he's born. He's a kid. I don't want my children playing with that bastard. Think about that. You're not playing with Yeshua. You come over here. You're not playing with Yeshua. I don't want to have anything to do with them. They're cursed. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, folks. He understands what it's like to be rejected, probably from a young age. Hmm.
Psalm 22. There's another passage that's used by Handel. Right? A very famous passage. It starts off with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words in Matthew 27, 46 that Jesus cried out in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Right? He cries out to God, his Father. Why have you forsaken me? Can someone read that? Let's go to Psalms 22. Go from one. Um, just start off from one to uh, uh, to eleven for now. Why are you so far from helping me? Wow. This is the son of the living God. This is the word that spoke space-time into existence. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He that is in the bosom of the Father is now saying, why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my crying, I cry in the day, you don't hear me. In the night season, but you don't. You're silent. Where are you? How many of you can relate to this? How many of you can relate to this? Where are you, God? <laughs> Where are you? Where are you? Why have you left me like this? Why have you left me in this situation? Why are you so far from helping me? I'm here to tell you that the Messiah knows what that's like. The Messiah knows. Isn't that why Hebrews 2 says, right? That he was tempted in every point as we are yet without sin. Right? You have a high priest that has been touched by our weakness. He lived it. And because of that we can go to him. We can, we can ask to get help for grace in time of need. Because we have a Messiah, a Savior that has identified with us. That when we cry out to God, where are you? He doesn't look down and say, well, how could you say something like that? What's wrong with you? I was there. I know. I know, but I will help you. But you are holy, O you that inhabits the praise of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried unto you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not confounded. His faith is still there. <laughs> Even though the father is silent, he's in complete torture and agony, but he still knows <laughs> that the father is with me. Still, It's not about feeling. Hallelujah. It's about truth. Amen? It's not about how you feel, but it's about what the truth is. 
Our feelings will not always line up with reality. Even though I can't hear God. Even though God seems a million miles away. But the truth is, is that He is holy. But I am a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lips and shake their heads saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Do you know that verse 8 was fulfilled by the Sanhedrin almost word for word? They would have read this in synagogue (laughs) during Haftarah and not realized that they said exactly the same words a thousand years later. Can someone read Matthew 27 verse 41 to 43? Talk about irony. These are men that study the scriptures. They would have known this song. And they have no idea in their anger, in their, their hatred for Yeshua. They don't realize they're saying word for word. Pretty much what, what the psalmist wrote a thousand years earlier. 41 to 43? Yeah. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. That's insane. Think about this for a minute. They don't realize what they're saying. You figure it's one click. Wait a minute. Didn't we just, didn't, wasn't that somewhere in the Bible when we just said that? That's the power of prophecy, that God knows a thousand years. David is writing on his harp. And the Spirit of God is coming on David. The Bible says the Spirit of Christ came on the prophets. He's writing. And he's saying this stuff. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he doesn't know. He doesn't know what he's writing. <laughs> he, he knows the words, but he doesn't see, he doesn't understand the context. But yet he's uttering the words of the Messiah and the, the words of the chief priests and the actions of the Romans a thousand years ahead of time. You want to talk about the Bible being the Word of God? Hmm. By the way, the Isaiah 53 script, many skeptics argue that it was changed. That Christians later took Isaiah 53 and, and, and doctored it to make it look like Jesus. But yet we found the Isaiah scroll in the Dead Sea Scroll discovered in 1947, which dates back to 150 to 100 BC, which is a thousand years earlier than the earliest documents of Isaiah we found before that, showing... That Isaiah 53 is completely intact before Jesus was even born. 150 to 100 years before he's even born. So the question is, how did Isaiah write something that sounds like Jesus 150 years before Jesus was even born? Because it's by the Spirit of God. It is supernatural that Isaiah wrote about Jesus Christ in detail before he was even born. Thus destroying that skeptic's argument. Amen? It is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. I love it. Mm. For many bulls have compassed me, verse 12. The strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and as a roaring lion. I'll get into more detail when we get into Psalm 68. But this alludes to the fact that there are also supernatural beings present at the cross. There weren't just the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the Romans, the two crucified people and the people of Israel there. There were also invisible beings, malevolent beings, who were also at the cross. 
talk about these bulls of Bashan. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. Okay? So he is being mocked also by the demonic realm, by Satan. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Yeah, seed of seed of the woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You see that? Good job, boys. <laughs> there goes the seed of the woman there. Oh, this is a great day, boys. Huh? I got a feeling. You right? Oh, yeah, this is great. They didn't keep reading. <laughs> they didn't keep reading. So think about that. Think about the torture. I'm going to talk a bit about that. The torture that he's under. Nailed to the cross, completely naked. Exposed to shame. Right? The Sanhedrin making fun of him. People, the women weeping. Israel saying, what the heck is going on here? Right? The father is silent. And on top of that, the demonic realm. There's a whole audience of the demonic realm jeering. Think about that for a minute. At every side, he's being assaulted on the cross here. Every side. Wow. You're going here. Um, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. And my tongue cleaves to the jaws, to my jaws. And you have brought me to the dust of death. You imagine? Bones are out of joint. It's probably very possible. The Romans didn't really... They weren't all about uh, comfort. They didn't really care. Not one bone was broken though. But his bones were out of joint. Heart like wax. Literally died of a broken heart and asphyxiation. We'll talk about that. <laughs> Unbelievable. Verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. In, 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 in Israel, in Judaism, dogs is a euphemism for, for what? Anyone know? Remember the story of the Syrophoenician woman? Jesus goes to this Tyre and Sidon, which is near the, uh, the coast of the Mediterranean. And there's a woman who says, please heal my daughter, my son. And what does Jesus say? It is not fit for to give the children's meat to dogs. That in the first century AD, that was a euphemism for the Gentiles. Okay, it was the Gentiles. And what did she say? But Rabbi, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. That's wow. Wow. She's saying, okay, I'll take the insult. I am a dog. But even the dogs eat the crumbs of the master's table. And she just said, I have, found not, I have not found such faith. Even in Israel, go your way. Your faith has made your son well. Unbelievable. But that was the culture. There are the goyim in Hebrew. The, the masses, the cattle. They are second class. Even in Judaism today, in certain sects, there are rabbis that believe that in the millennial kingdom... That we will be slaves to the Israelites. That we will be servants. That's they believe that. That we're second rate to them. And so dogs have surrounded me. Gentiles would surround him in his death. This is fulfilled by the Romans. Who surrounded him. The assembly of the wicked 
have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand years before the Romans. Now the Babylonians and the Assyrians had, had dabbled with crucifixion. And that was even before David's time. Right? But it's the Romans who perfected it. And it's simple gravity. We'll talk a bit about that. It is, in fact, that's where we get the word excruciating from. Ex cruce, ex out of crux cross. Excruciating pain, that, that word literally comes out of Roman crucifixion. It is literally one of the worst ways you can possibly die. It is meant to maximize human suffering, right? And also to maximize human life. And to shame, to be a deterrent to all those who would defy the Roman Empire. It was so horrific that even Roman citizens would not be crucified. Okay? Um, I'll get into, I'll get into it a little bit now. Why not? We'll keep going here. Handel also quotes Isaiah 50. And we'll read it. Can I get someone to read Isaiah 50, verses 5 to 9? messianic passage as well right Israel sins that separated them from God, from Yahweh yet there and I misspelled there that's fine <laughs> yet there was one who was not rebellious in Israel and suffered on Israel's behalf he gave his back to the smiters his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair off his beard and was spit on and humiliated and we see that that the, the Sanhedrin spit on him and punched him in the face the Romans spit on him beat him over the head with a stick Right. Yet he knew that the Father was with him, so he set his face like a flint. I will not be moved. Some of you have seen the Passion of the Christ. And I'll get to the good job. There's a part where he's whipped, and I'll talk about that. He's whipped with a regular whipping, a mastigo whipping, and then he gets back up. He gets up. You remember that part? He gets back up and says, My heart is ready. And that's where they start pulling out the flagellum, the Scorpio flagellum whipping. And that's a different story. All right? Um, but notice verses 8 and 9. Missy, can you read 8 and 9 again? Listen to the language. Where have you heard this language before in the Bible? Read it again. Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront 
sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Where have you heard this language before in the Bible? If God before us, who can be against us? Who is he that condemns? Someone read Romans 8, 31 to 34. That's where Paul gets that from. He gets it from Isaiah 50, a messianic passage. Maybe some people didn't know that. So Romans 8, 31 to 34. Let's read it. Who's my next victim or reader? Sorry, reader. <laughs> what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Hmm. Keep going. Who is to, con- who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Mm. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Because mm, up there. Isn't that interesting that Paul in Romans 8 quotes Isaiah 50? And, and interpolates it. He, he expands it, showing you that the hope of the Messiah in suffering is also the hope of those that put their trust in him. I love that. Jesus said, who is he that condemns me? <laughs> who is he that's against me because my father's with me? Romans 8 says to us, who is he that condemns us? Who is he that brings charge against me? For it is God that justifies. Right? It is Christ seated at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Isn't that amazing? The hope that he had, he gives us. He gives you in your time of suffering, in your time of trial. I give it to you. Amen? In this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And because I have overcome, you will also overcome. Amen? You will also overcome. Hallelujah. I love that. I love that. He was humiliated, folks. Absolutely humiliated. Psalm 69. Which is a messianic passage. We see the messianic, the the New Testament writers considered Psalm 69 to be a messianic passage. Jesus himself quotes from Psalm 69.4 in John 15.25 in reference to himself. Where he says, they hated me without a cause. That's a direct quote from Psalm 69. The disciples connected Psalm 69 verse 9 to Jesus' cleansing of the temple. When it says, the zeal of the, of the, of the, of the Lord's house has eaten me up. And he says, they remembered the scripture when he was cleaning the temple. They went to Psalm 69. The disciples connected, or sorry, Jesus quotes Psalm 69 21 on the cross in order to fulfill it. Can I get someone to read Psalm 69 20 and 21? See what I'm talking about. Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Yeah. And uh and read the next part. Uh, let their own table before them become a snare and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Mm. So we see that in John 19, 
It says when he knew that the scripture, when the time had come to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. Why? Because he knows he has to fulfill Psalm 69. Even in unbelievable torture, he still knows he has to fulfill the scripture written a thousand years before. So I thirst. And they gave him sour vinegar on a, on a hyssop stalk. All right? But I want to go a little bit into this, this suffering we're talking about. So John 19.1 tells us that Pilate had Jesus scourged, which the Greek word is mastigu, followed by placing of a crown made of a thorny plant, acantha, on his head. Yet Pilate still attempted to release him. It could be that Jesus was scourged twice. The first scourging was meant as non-lethal, a way to appease the Jews. But since that didn't work, the possibility was he inflicted the second scourging for condemned criminals. And that scourging in Matthew 27, 26 is called fragellu from the Latin flagellum or scorpio, a scorpion flagellum whipping. Scorpio flagellum scourgings was often used as a prelude to crucifixion. Whips with small balls of lead or bone at the tips were commonly used. Also glass and other things like that would be put in there in knots. These scourgings would often cause disfigurement and serious trauma, right? We saw that in Isaiah 52. They didn't even recognize him. He looked like a piece of meat, a hamburger, than when they were done with him. And would cause serious trauma, such as ripping pieces of flesh off the body or a loss of an eye even. In addition to causing severe pain, the victim would approach a state of hypovolemic shock, a state of decreased blood volume, right, or blood pressure. The Romans reserved this scourging for non-citizens. And there's writings that talk about this. Um, the condemned was stripped naked and bound to um, a low pillar so that he could bend over it. Or chained to an upright pillar as to be stretched out. Two lictors, or sometimes up to four or six, which are muscular Roman civil servants, alternated blows from the bare shoulders down to the body to the soles of the feet. There was no limit to the numbers of blows inflicted, as opposed to the Hebrew 40 save one, 40 minus one. They didn't follow that. Okay. This was left to the lictors to decide, though they were normally not supposed to kill the victim. Nonetheless, Livy, Suetonius, and Josephus reported cases of flagellum scourgings where victims died while still being bound to the post. Scorpio flagellum scourging was often referred to as half-death by some authors, and apparently many victims died shortly after. Cicero, who was a Roman, a Roman orator, reports in his book, his writing, In Terum, Pro morto sublatus brevi postus mortuos, taken away for a dead man shortly there after he was dead. Okay, so it tells you this, the severity of this. In some cases, the victim was turned over to allow flagellation on the chest. Though this was done with more caution as the possibility of inflicting a fatal blow was much, much greater. The severity of scourging depended on the lictors and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. As the Roman lictors repeatedly struck the victim's back or chest with full force, the iron balls 
or bone would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bone would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for hypovolemic shock. The extent of blood loss, we may never know completely. When it says he gave my back to this minor, by his stripes, we are healed. That's what it's talking about, folks. Where skin is literally hanging down. Psalms 22 says, as he's on the cross, I may, I may stare at my bones. In other words, it's possible as he looks down, he can see his ribs. All the muscle and skin has been removed. He can actually see his ribs, seeing the heart move on his chest, folks. That's what it's saying. That's what it's saying. He was unrecognizable by the time he's nailed to the cross. After Jesus was scorpion flagellum scourged, the Roman soldiers took him to the hall called the Praetorium, probably a courtyard where the detachment of the Praetorian Guard was stationed. According to John 19, 1-3 and Matthew 27, 27-31, the whole regiment had their sadistic fun with this bloody mess of a man who they claimed to be a king. Right? What fun we can have with this guy. <laughs> right? They're pretty brutal, the Romans. Okay? They, right? These are soldiers who've been in, in battle, in field, and now here's some time to have a bit of fun with this guy. Sadistic fun with this guy. After the, the scorpion flagellum scourging, the soldiers or lictors put back on his clothes. So you think of all these nerve endings exposed, and now you're putting clothes on that. Well, what happens? Coagulation, it starts drying on the clothes, right? In the Praetorium, the whole regiment played with him, removing his clothes again, ripping his clothes off. What does that do? Start flowing in all that pain again, right? And putting on him a scarlet robe, mocking his claim of royalty. They weaved a makeshift, a makeshift crown or a wreath out of acantha, acantha um, thorns. Either a wreath was made to inflict more pain on, on Jesus' forehead or to simply make him look ridiculous. Very interesting. And then after that, they took a reed, or a stick in his hand, a mock scepter, bowing before him. Then they spit on him, took the reed out of his hand, and beat him on the head with it, further inflicting damage of the, of the thorns into his head, to his skull. Then they took off the scarlet robe again and put back on Jesus' original clothes on him. Back and forth. Back and forth. Back and forth. Wow. Pretty amazing. Humiliation, because that's what our sin is. That's what our sin deserves, Missy. When I sin against God, that's what it looks like. A bloody mess to God. That's what I deserve. And so God probably even allowed those Roman soldiers to be there that day who had a sadistic, <laughs> a sadistic tendency on their hands to do that all on him. They may have not done that every single time, but they may have taken a special liking to this one. Let's have fun, boys, with this one. That's what our sin looks like, folks, right? 
It pleased the Lord to bruise him. What a weird statement. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It pleased the Father to bruise him. Why? So that he might justify many. So that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory. That's why. That's why. It wasn't the Jews that killed him, really. It wasn't the Romans that killed him, really. The Father had put him to grief. And the Son offered himself before space-time was even created that I'll do it. We know Adam and Eve are going to sin. We know what, they're, what the human race will do. And I'm willing. I'm willing. I'll do it. I'll save my own creation and be tortured for them. I'll do it. After, after fatigue, having no sleep all night, and the brutal scorpio flagellum scourging, Jesus could not carry the crossbeam. We know that they would put a crossbeam on, on, the, on, the, on the victim. So the victim would be forced to carry their own, their own uh, device of execution. So um, there's a book called uh, by D.A. Ball called The Crucifixion and Death of a Man Called Jesus. In some cases, such as Jesus, the condemned was forced to carry the crossbeam to the execution site. The whole cross would have weighed well over 135 kilograms or 300 pounds. But the crossbeam, or the patibulum in Latin, would not be quite as burdensome, weighing around 45 kilograms or 100 pounds. The Roman historian Tacitus records that the city of Rome had a specific place for carrying out of executions. And so we know the Romans would have, in different cities, would have a specific area of carrying out executions. So upright posts, or stipes in Latin, would be presumably fixed permanently in that place. And the patibulum, with the condemned person tied or nailed to it, would then be attached to the post with the help of ropes. Iron spikes, approximately 12 centimeters or 5 inches, were driven with hammers just above the wrist, between the two bones of the forearm, the radius and the ulna. So not here, as sometimes we've seen it, because the, the weight of the, the cross would have ripped. Your hand would have ripped right off the nail. They put it between the wrists here, right in that spot, where that median nerve goes through, which inflicts even more pain. So as the nails are being driven, that pain shoots up to his brain. The screaming would have been unbelievable. By the way, the Romans, that's why the Romans would give them a light sedative. We see that they would whine, and it would be a sedative in the wine to calm the criminal down. But Jesus, he didn't spit it out. No. I have to take the full brunt of every bit of pain. I have to take it all. Do you want to talk about Jesus being a wimp? I've heard that. He's some sissy. He's the most heroic person you'll ever meet in human history, folks. I can't take a sedative for this. I can't cheat my way through this. I have to experience all of it. And they would also nail it through the heels as well. The length of time required to reach death could range from hours to days, depending on the method, the victim's health, and the environment. Some people even died by predation that animals would eat them off the cross while they're alive. Birds plucking at them, wild dogs eating their feet while they're on the cross. It's gruesome, folks. Crucifixion, you see in, in a church today, oh, the wonderful cross, right? 
and we think it, it's this beautiful thing of, of redemption. But in the first century, Romans didn't even want to talk about crucifixion. It is so horrific to watch you would throw up if you saw some of what's going on there. And this is what he does. And what happens, some of you know this already, is that as you're nailed to the cross, you're like that or like this, what happens is, is gravity does its work. And basically what it does, it, it causes asphyxiation. So I can explain it. How many of you have ever hung from a bar before? Right? And you'll notice that after a while, your breathing becomes more labored. You ever notice that? Because what happens is there's what's called a diaphragmic muscle, which acts like a bellows, like an accordion, that pushes the lungs up and down. As a trumpet player, we use that muscle for, for air, to breathe, to, to, put air, to, to play the instrument. And that's attached, of course, to your, your hips, right? Supported by your femurs, your bones, your feet. So as the person is nailed to the cross, it's getting labored. And so the tendency is to push down for support for the diaphragmic muscle to push the lung back up. But every time you push the pain, so you gotta push yourself back up. But you can't breathe, you gotta push. Ah! He went through that for six hours. That's a school day. I want you to think about that. From nine in the morning till three of that. Meanwhile, blood loss, unbelievable torture. And what does he say to the Romans that are having a laugh? They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. They don't know who I am. They don't know. They don't know. But I'll stick with this, Father. I could come down from the cross. I have the power instantly to come down from the cross. I could remove the Roman Empire in a tenth of a second. In a millionth of a second, they, they cease to exist. But I will despise the shame. who for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, right, endured the cross, despising the shame. For six hours, he went through this torture. Darkness was over the whole face of the line. A very weird supernatural darkness that many historians record, actually, showing that the gospel records are, in fact, accurate. Right? And when he gets to around 3 p.m., and he knew the time had come. He says, I thirst to fulfill Psalm 69. And then he quotes the Psalms. He says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. That word in Greek, we now know, we found Greek manuscripts, Greek uh, ancient receipts from ancient Greece. The word is a financial term. It's telekastai in Greek. It means paid in full. When he said it is finished. Paid in full. The sin debt is paid in full. Which means you can't put any more money on it. You can't add to it. It's not Jesus 
end. Amen? When Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished. Your works can't be added to it. The good things you do can't be added to it. How many times you pray can't be added to it. How much money you put in the plate can't be added to it. It is finished. Not by works, lest any man should boast. Amen? That's why it's a travesty to the cross when we try to add our own good works. Because what you're saying is it was not finished. You're contradicting it. It is finished. And as he said this, there's an earthquake throughout the whole land of Judea, which is also recorded by historians. Very interesting. And actually split the, 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 the veil of the temple in two. The Talmud records this about 40 years before 70 AD. It was an earthquake. All right. And it says that he released his spirit. Ekbalo in Greek. Generally, the way it works is when death happens, right, you're, you're, the muscles give out, and then your head goes down. But in the Greek, it's very interesting. In the Greek, he puts his head down first and releases his spirit. In other words, he controls his own death in the Greek. John 10 says, John 10 says, No man takes my life from me, for I have laid it down of my own free will. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. I'm in control here. Even though I'm a bloody mess, I'm running the show. Hallelujah. I'm running. This wasn't an accident. This is what just a really bad thing that happened to a really nice rabbi. This had been planned before the creation of space-time by the Godhead. This is what would happen. We can rest knowing that Jesus is in control. Even in our darkest times, he's in control. Even when all the disciples ran away and only John had the guts to come. It was the women, by the way, that had the guts to show up. Isn't that interesting? It was the women. Where were the macho men? Where were the macho men? Where was Peter? <laughs> Where was Matthew? Right? It was the women. Amen? May we never have this split between men and women. This second class thing. Jesus doesn't do that. Amen? It was the women. It was the women that came. Hallelujah. Glory to God. But it didn't end there, did it? I love this part. Right? Woo! He's dead. Yeah. Yeah, boys. Good job. Satan, good job, boys. Demons, fallen angels. Yeah. Perfect. This this see the serpent savior business. Yeah. We show God. See the serpent. Crush the head of the <laughs> yeah, three days later. <laughs> yeah. We didn't see that one coming. We didn't see that one coming, did we? Huh? Psalm 16. Can I get someone to read this? Psalm 16, verse 8 to 11. Nor will 
path of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Amen. Peter quotes from this psalm in Acts 2, 24 to 33, and attributes it to the resurrection of Christ. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor allow your suffer your holy one to see corruption, bodily decay. He didn't rot. There was no putrefaction on the body. Right? He didn't allow him to stay in Sheol or Hades, the underworld, the place, the place of disembodied spirits. The Bible teaches this in the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures that there is a place in the earth. Uh, it's a metaphysical place. It's not a physical place, but a, meta, a spiritual place where it's, it talks about the disembodied souls of those who die. And it talks about the righteous and the wicked being there. And many believe, and I believe too, that Luke 16, the parable of the Lazarus and the rich man, is actually Jesus giving a little bit more detail on it. Where he says that there's two sections to Sheol. There's a place for the righteous, where Abraham was, and that's where Lazarus was in Abraham's chest, Abraham's bosom. And there's a great gulf fixed, and on the other side is the wicked, where the rich man was. Right? So he went to Sheol. We see that in Peter and other places. Remember, remember the, uh, the thief? The Bible seems to indicate that both thieves were making fun of him at first. But one of them had a change of heart. You remember? And so they're there, and then during the six hour, we don't know when it happened in that six hour period, but probably the latter half, between 12 and 3, most likely. And uh, it's going on. And the other guy's like, you know, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. And the guy basically says, shut up. Don't you fear God? Knowing that we're under the same... Con like, you're making fun of him, but you're nailed to the cross too? Like, really? <laughs> like, how does that make any sense? We have the same condition as this guy. And we are receiving the just due for our crimes. We deserve this. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he turns to Yeshua, who is just blood everywhere, just unbelievable pain, and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, who's an unbelievable torture, isn't that like him? Even in unbelievable torture, he still cares about other people. Unbelievable. He says, Verily, truly I say unto you, this day you will be in paradise with me. Now, who died first? The thief or Jesus? Right. Remember? The Romans were surprised to see that he was dead so quick. Why? Because usually crucifixion will last from days, even up to a week. How did the guy die in six hours? That's impossible. Nobody dies that quickly. Okay? So, okay, well, we got to do something because now Passover's coming. The 15th of the first month, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is coming. You, the, according to the Torah, you can't have hanging criminals on the cross or on a, hanging on a tree because it, all the entire land of Israel is, is cursed. We've got to take them off the cross. But according to Roman law, you can't, you can't leave a guy alive. You can't take down a guy from the cross alive. So what do they do? That's right. They would have these huge clubs. And they would smash the kneecaps. Why? Because of what I explained. Once you can't push down anymore because your legs are broken, your lungs start filling with water. You start asphyxiating. Okay? But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. So just to make sure he was dead, because according to Roman law, you can't take them down if they're still alive. The soldier between, I think it's the 5th and 6th intercostal rib, right? Puts a spear right through. 
And John stops the narrative. He actually stops the narrative for this. Very, very important. He's saying, really pay attention to this. And I bear witness that it is true that he saw blood and water come out separately. Which means what, Amanda? Uh, blood over, he separating. Which means? He was dead. He's not passed out. A lot of skeptics say that. He just passed out and woke up three days later. Nope, John stops the narrative to make this point. And I bear witness that you may believe that he is the Son of God. Why? Because he's clinically dead. It is impossible to be alive and have the, the liquid separate from the platelets, right? From, from that. It's, impo it's impo absolutely impossible for him to be passed out. He has to be absolutely dead, which now sets up three days later. That if he's now alive, you have a resurrection. He didn't wake up. Amen? John stops the narrative to make this point and then continues that you may know that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He would be shown the path of life. He would not stay in Sheol. And he rose from the dead before Sunday morning service. Right? Just as the Sabbath was ending before, before the sun rose. Interesting. And we'll get to Psalm 68, which is what we'll talk a bit about that too. Okay? Isaiah 53, 10 to 12. Can someone read that? Isn't this exciting? It's like awesome stuff. You should be sitting on the edges of your seats, guys. This stuff is unreal. <laughs> yeah. Isaiah 53, 10 to 12. Look at the language. Yeah, verses 10 to 12. Uh, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief, or he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall see, pro or he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and, make, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Mm. Well, that's weird. It says things like he has poured out his soul into death. Right? He was cut off from the land of the living. So, this suffering servant is dead, according to the Hebrew. But then it says, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. How can you prolong your days if you're dead? Because you're alive again. That's how. Fear not, he told John. I am the first and the last. I was he that was dead and is alive and is alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades of Sheol. I have the authority over death. Hallelujah. All right. 
He was given a portion with the great because he offered himself as a sin offering. Right? It's what the verse I quoted today. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. That's, what the, that's where that comes from, really. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. Right? Because he humbled himself even to death on a cross. That's why. Psalms 2.7, where it says, The Lord has declared a decree. You are my son. This day have I begotten you. The, some scriptures translate begotten, or today I have become your father. But in the Hebrew, that's not really what it says. In Hebrew, the word is yalad, which simply means to bring forth. So that could mean bring forth children, but it could just mean bring forth. And Paul... In Acts 13, translates a lot as bring forth from the dead. That's the way he interprets it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, you are my son, this day have I brought you from the dead. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as an inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth as your possession. Can someone turn to Daniel 7? We see this in Daniel 7, the throne room vision that Daniel has at night. Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Um, sorry, uh, the, 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 uh, verses, verses 13 to 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. As a sun, the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to know. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Mm. Isn't that what he told the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? O ye fools, and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered, and then to enter into his glory? He sees like the Son of Man being brought to the Ancient of Days. You have the Father, the Son being brought to the Father with the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man. Where have you heard that language before? Remember at his trial before Caiaphas? And he says, I adjure you, are you the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And he says, you have said it. And hereafter you shall see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, sitting at the right hand of the power of God. Where is he quoting that from? From Daniel 7. He's saying, I'm the one that Daniel saw 500 years ago. Hallelujah. In his night vision. Approaching the Ancient of Days and receiving glory and honor and power. I'm the one that he saw. And he ripped his garment, the high priest. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Hmm. He resurrected from the dead. Psalm 68. And also Romans. Can go to, uh, sorry, Ephesians. Can you go to Ephesians? Get, we'll be the last passage we'll cover today. Let's go to Ephesians 4. Can I get someone to read um, from verse 7 um, to, uh, to, uh, to 12? So Ephesians 4, from verse 7 to 12. For grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, 
and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Mm. So see, Paul quotes from Isaiah 6, from uh, Psalm 68. You have ascended up on high. You have led captivity captive and received gifts for men. So Psalm 68 is also known as a, is, it's a very interesting passage, right? So it's, it's this imagery of Yahweh in victory, defeating his foes. Riding on the chariots of clouds, right? It also has a really interesting description of a mountain of Bashan. And he, call, he, and he calls it as the mountain of God. The mountain that God desires to live on, as he did on Sinai. Very interesting. Yet the many-peaked mountain of Bashan looks at Sinai with hatred. There's animosity between Bashan and Sinai. Does anyone know where Sinai is located? Saudi Arabia. We know it as Jabal el-Aws. Not, not in the Sinai Peninsula, which is called St. Catherine's Monastery. That's false. That's why when archaeologists go there, they find nothing there. Because they follow the tradition of Constantine's mother, who was into, involved in the occult. And apparently spirits told her that that's where Mount Sinai was. Of course the spirits would tell her that. <laughs> the Bible says that Sinai is in the land of Midian. Paul writes in Galatians, it's in Arabia, Petraea, which is what we would call Saudi Arabia today. And there's a mountain called Jabal el We'll talk about it another time. It's one of the highest mountain peaks in Saudi Arabia, northwestern part of Saudi Arabia. And it is, the top of the mountain is singed black. It is granite, melted granite, folks. Burned black. You can see it on Google Earth. You can still see it. It's black. Okay? Where Bashan is what we call the Golan Heights in northern Israel. And at the extreme part of the Golan Heights is a mountain, a three-pronged mountain peak called Mount Hermon. Anyone heard of this? Some of you remember the Kingdom of God series, right? Remember this? Mount Hermon. Now, according to Jewish history, what significant event happened on Mount Hermon? Uh, right. The Bible talks about that there are angels that left their first estate in Jude, Second Peter. They're angels that left their habitation. They left their watch. They left where they were supposed to do. And they sinned. Right? Well, the book of Enoch and, and uh, Jubilees in the Jewish tradition says that there were 200 watchers. We find these word watchers in the book of Daniel. Ivri in Hebrew. Or Yiri um, in Hebrew. Um, there are these watchers. These angels that are apparently have this position of guarding, of watching over specific areas of, of human civilization that God has assigned. And 200 of them make an oath. They descend on Mount Hermon during the time of Jared. Jared was one of the Antediluvians, one of the, the people before the flood from, from Adam. His word, the, the name Jared literally means to descend. Very interesting. That it's during this time, these 200 angels, under this leader, this angel called Semjaza, Decides they make an oath 
that they're going to take human women as wives. This is what we read in Genesis 6, that the sons of God took the daughters of men, that they were fair. Okay? And through that corruption spread in humanity. Alright? And so, Bashan and Mount Hermon was known as the mountain of, of the oath. It was also had a malevolent, sinister twist to it. Which is why there's animosity between the hill of Bashan, Mount Hermon, and Sinai, which, is, which was God's holy place. There's animosity. But God says in Psalm 68 that one day Bashan will be mine. Now you're wondering, what does that have to do with all this? Well, what's interesting is, in Matthew 16, the Bible says that Jesus brings his disciples to a city called Caesarea Philippi, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. It's a Gentile city. Today it's called the city of Benias. Okay? And he says, who do men say that I am? You remember this? Well, some people think you're John the Baptist's life. Some people think you're Isaiah. Some people think you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. No, no, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, what does Peter say? That you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are blessed beyond men, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Right? And I name you Peter. Right? And upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now what's interesting is that Caesarea Philippi is at the slope of Mount Hermon. Interesting. And... Caesarea Philippi was one of the centers in antiquity of the worship of the god Pan, which is the goat god. You get the word panic from. Like, ah, where the panic? That's where it comes from. Okay? The, word, the goat god, the goat demon, the god Pan. And there were, in, the, in Caesarea Philippi, there were these grottos or caves. And they were called the portals or the gates to Hades. They, they, they believe that there was like this kind of this portal between the physical world and the spiritual world to Hades, underneath the earth. So imagine the backdrop here. So when Jesus is saying that, he says, Caesarea Philippi, and he says, Peter, the rock, right? And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates, the portals of Hades over there, will not prevail against it. Now it gives that verse context. They're literally in the town where they have the gates of hell. That's why he says that. What's interesting is the next chapter, six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John in an extremely high mountain. People used to say it was Mount Tabor, which is further south, but most scholars believe, because of the topology, that the nearest highest mountain is Mount Hermon. And what does he do? He goes up there, and what, as they're standing, what happens? And remember what happens. He transfigures. Suddenly as he's there, now they just know him as Yeshua bin Nazareth, right? Jesus of Nazareth, right from Galilee, right? Son of Jude, whatever. Right? He's wearing regular first century Hebrew clothes, right? But suddenly now as they're there, he's now now he's shining. Now his like clothes are like super white. There's like this light coming from him. Right? And they're freaking out. Right? It's kind of like you you know. For the past couple of years, you've known me as Yeshua Menatzes. But I'm going to give you a preview of who I really am. <laughs> that I'm the Son of Man in Daniel 7. I'm the Son of God, I'm the Messiah. 
that all the prophets have talked about. I'm giving you a little precursor, a little trailer of my glory to come. Right? And of course they're there, and Peter is always the brash one, right? He's always the one who's got to say something first. Boom! And as they're there, what, who else is they, do they see? They see the souls of Moses and Elijah. And what are they talking about? His upcoming death in Jerusalem. That's what they're, they're having a discussion about, his upcoming death. You have Moses, which is the law, and you have Elijah, which represents the prophets, all pointing to what? The Messiah and his death. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Right? And Peter says, oh, whoa, well, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let's, let's set up three tents. One for you, <laughs> one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And as they're talking, there's this cloud that comes down on Mount Hermon and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Don't come up with your own ideas, Peter. Listen to what he says. Church, Monsieur Dave, don't come up with your own ideas. Michael, don't come up with your own plans. Listen to what he says. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. But there's more going on here. What did I, what did I say that happened on that mountain according to Jewish history? fallen angels came down on that mountain and started spreading all kinds of, of wickedness on the earth. What is Jesus doing by specifically going on that mountain and revealing his glory? What is he doing? He's taking back Bashan. <laughs> He's like, alright, I'm here now. Psalm 68 is starting to be fulfilled. <laughs> I'm taking it back. We're taking it back, baby. We're taking it back. Bashan is going to be like Sinai. I will have it all. I'm starting that process right now. But we're going to go to my last part. We're done. What time is it? We're almost done here. So we're going to go to Psalm 68 quickly. Verse 18. I could go on for hours with this stuff, but I can't. Um, can someone read verse 18? And 19. 68, 18, 19. 68, verse 18, 19. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives, and your train and receiving gifts among them, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Yeah. You have ascended up on high. So Paul takes this psalm referring to Yahweh being victorious, and applies it to the Messiah, Yahweh incarnate, who is victorious over death. And he ascends. But first, he had to descend to the lower parts of the earth. In the Greek, the Greek doesn't say, it's not talking about on the earth. In the Greek, it's under the earth. Remember I said that? For, um, remember in, in Philippians 2, it says, um, but wherefore God is highly exalted and given a name to every name, that the name of every knee should bow of things on earth. Things in heaven, things in earth, and of things underneath the earth. Why? Because there was a place underneath the earth for the souls of the departed. Section for the wicked, a section for the righteous. And it seems, when you put the scriptures together, that when Jesus dies at 3 p.m., his body is still nailed to the cross, but his soul also goes to Sheol, to Hades. 
And we see Peter talking about him preaching to the spirits that are in prison. There's other things that are happening there. And what's interesting is, when he rises from the dead, that coincides with the Feast of First Fruits on the Hebrew calendar. Right, where the high priest would offer a wave offering. He would take the first sheaf of barley and tie it up. Keep that word in mind. Tie it. Right? And wave it before the ark. He couldn't go in. When's the only time you can go in? Past, past the veil. What's the only day in the Jewish county you go the high priest you go in? The day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Right? This is not Yom Kippur. You cannot go. He'll die instantly if he goes in there. So he takes this sheaf of barley and he waves it in front of the curtain. And in combination, he offers a lamb of the first year. What's interesting is Jesus rises from the dead and he leads captivity captive. Just as the high priest would tie the sheaf. And what do sheaves and harvests often represent in the Bible? Remember? The field the, is plenty, but the laborers are few. Therefore, sent. What does the harvest represent there? Souls. Right? So just as the high priest would tie the sheaf and offer it as a wave offering, what does the Messiah do? He takes all the souls, the righteous from Sheol, and captures them, tie, if you will, kind of like tie them up, and brings them before the Father as a wave offering. And in combination with that, he offers himself as the Lamb of God of the first year, slain without lunch, to fulfill the Feast of First Fruits. But while he's doing this, he makes a quick stop. This could be happening within hundreds of a second, outside of space-time, he's doing this. But he makes a stop in space-time, for who? This story always brings me to tears. Because there's a woman who's absolutely broken, who's bawling her eyes out, when she goes in the tomb and stuff is empty. And he makes a stop, and in all his busy schedule, emptying souls, bringing them before the throne, he makes a stop, hallelujah. He says, woman, why do you weep? For they've taken away the bottom of the water, I don't know where he is. Mary, Rabboni, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go and tell my brethren that I ascend to my father and their father and to my God and their God. Don't touch me, Mary, don't hold on to me, because there's something I need to do. I haven't done it yet. But once I'm done, I'll be back. And that's what he does. He led captivity captive. He brought them all before the presence of God. Right? And that's why Paul writes, to be absent from the bodies of the presence of the Lord. You don't need to go there anymore. You see, even though Abraham and David and Esther and Ruth were righteous, their sin had not yet been paid for. They still have to wait for the coming of the Messiah to pay for their sin so that they can stand before the presence of God. Amen? And lastly, it also says that he received gifts. And Paul says he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. Even the rebellious. That the Lord God might dwell among them. What is this hinting at? He gave gifts even to the rebellious, to the sinner, that the Lord God might dwell among or inside of them. What's the next feast? 50 days later. Shavuot, or Pentecost. 
that the Spirit of God would come and give gifts to believers, even those who are rebellious, not the righteous, but even the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell in them. Right? And no man will, will emancipate his neighbor and the Lord, for they will all know me. Jeremiah 31. Amen? We're going to stop there. I can go on for hours and hours. This stuff is incredible. But, hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? Amazing stuff. We'll end there for today. If you have questions, you come up. You can ask. Right? Great stuff. I'm just going to pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Thank you for the Messiah. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that though he was crushed for our iniquities, though he was bruised, Lord, he was wounded for our transgressions, Lord, that he died of sinners that, Lord, even though he was without sin, that he was mutilated and crucified, that that wasn't the end of the story. Hallelujah. It was just the beginning. He defeated death. He defeated the grave. He defeated the demonic forces. He defeated sin. And he's at the right hand of God right now. That he has given us gifts. That he dwells with us, among us. And that one day he will return. And that the nations will give him the due honor he deserves. Hallelujah. His name will no longer be a curse word. Hallelujah. It will no longer be a, a, a point of contention. But it will be a name of reverence among the nations of the earth. In, and so we give you glory today. As we leave this place, I pray, Lord, that you would just fill us with your presence. That we would just walk, Lord, in, in joy and in peace. Knowing that if you are for us, none can be against us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. If you'd like to hear more, join us on Sundays and head to MissioDayWPG.ca. That's M-I-S-S-I-O-D-E-I-W-P-G dot C-A for more details on where we meet.